Thanks, Chris. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Sam, which some of you, most of you know, and uh, I just wanted to uh, declare my love for my wife, who I have been married to for 17 years today, which is uh, a heck of a long time. Yeah. I know that's applause for like, wow, you put up with him for 17 years? Uh, I, I will say without even blinking an eye, uh, and without apology, that I am um, madly in love with my wife, and I really pray that that is the same for uh, for all marriages. Sadly, I think it's not, um, and I think that uh, we need to make a more concerted effort, actually, on on kind of training and teaching and, and counseling in marriages. But man, I got a fantastic wife and some pretty good kids too. But my wife is awesome. So I uh, just wanted to make sure everyone knew that I loved her a ton. A little bit less than Jesus, but still a ton. Now, Judges chapter 6 is where we're at. Uh, if you're new, we are basically, we go through, straight through books of the Bible. We're in Judges right now, which is uh, maybe not very common in a lot of churches, but we just kind of pick it and go. And uh, this has been an awesome study. We actually have uh, studies in Exodus and Joshua, which are the books prior to this, that you can get. And we finally have some of the stuff back up on the wall, so you can see some of the study guides and all the stuff that's available online. So you can maybe catch up or, or get maybe some perspective by listening to some of those things. But we're in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to go through the first ten verses here. And if you follow along with me, it'll be on the screen as well. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back, and you're welcome to have one. Uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1, says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste with the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And all God's people said, this is God's word. So the book of Judges, uh, to give you a little bit of context, it is the continuing story of God's people that began in Genesis uh, and really with the call of a man named Abraham. And it is the story of a faithful God living and loving and pursuing an unfaithful people in a very broken and messed up world. And so uh, the Exodus, just a little bit of context, uh, basically God's people were enslaved in Egypt, as he kind of referenced there, and they were led by an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd named Moses, 
And he uh, delivered them out of, or led them out of Egypt under the direction of God and power of God, and brought them into the land of Canaan, the land of the Canaanites, the same land that had been promised to Abraham, uh, their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, many years earlier. And so Judges is bookended, uh, really, by Joshua, which is the conquering of the promised land under General Joshua, and then the establishment of the monarchy, the first king in Israel, under Saul. So you got Joshua and Saul, this in-between time with a lot of different leaders and not very good leaders, uh, some kind of disturbing leaders at times. And so the book of Judges records the time after Joshua died. They didn't have a new successor. They didn't have a leader to, uh, to come up. And so God raises up these individuals. And they had conquered the land. God had said the land had been conquered. The enemies had been defeated. They had been disarmed. And all they had to do now was, was fully live in the land that they had been given that was theirs. And what that meant, possessing the land, if you will, meant they had to drive out smaller pockets of resistance of all the peoples that had already been really conquered at that point. And God promised them if they would fight, um, then he would basically, they would be successful and they would give them the rest of the land that was already theirs. It was theirs, they owned it, God had given it to them. So specifically what that meant was they were supposed to follow God's command in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which is to annihilate the rest of the enemies, to make no covenants or contracts or agreements or peace treaties with them, uh, to not intermarry with them, so don't pick any wives from any of these people, and destroy all their altars. And so the book of Judges is the record of that failure, basically, uh, of their failure to do all of that. And there's a cycle that kind of goes up. They seem like they're going to be successful, and they do the right thing, and then they will fail again after their deliverer dies. So it's called Judges, because these 12 individuals that come up are called Judges. But really, if you read carefully through the book of Judges, there's only one person that is called Judge, and that's God. Even Deborah gets close. She says she is judging, but she's never actually called a judge. Only God is. And so without a leader, Israel continually falls like I said, into sin, which leads, leads to God, the judge, judging his children by raising up a foreign army, an enemy, to judge them. They will cry out eventually. And then he will raise up a judge, a deliverer, to judge his enemies. So God is the one who is judging throughout the entire book. And there is one deliverer, though, or one person that historically the church has called judges, uh, and the Jews have called judges, uh, but they're really deliverers. And they, um, one from each tribe. So there's 12 total. Uh, at this point, we have seen four. And so today's text uh, emphasizes the fifth deliverer named Gideon. Now, you may have heard of Gideon. Uh, Gideon is a wonderful, terrible guy. So he is great and bad. You see that pretty commonly with most of the judges. Um, but this is a story that extends over three chapters. So we're just getting the setting of the stage, but it's going to be Gideon for basically about almost a month. Now, the story begins, as we just read, with um, the chaos of having just fought, if you've been here the last couple weeks, they just fought a big Canaanite war. And that war now is over. There's been peace. Chaos has kind of uh, been subsided. And... During this time, uh, everything, life returns. 
Well, the difficulty is, it seems like, as time goes on, that they were broken over their situation, but they may have not actually been broken over their sin. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, when someone sins, when someone rebels against God, when someone is caught doing something that is evil, I've seen, and, and maybe you have seen, and maybe you've even experienced, there a lot of men, and I'll just say men generally for mankind, a lot of men will cry about the pain that they have caused. They'll weep even over those they have hurt. They will even fight to be different and live differently for a time. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're repentant. They can all have tears. Israel's had lots of tears. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. This is so terrible. Comes in, delivers them. When the deliverer dies eventually, they go back to what they were doing. They go back and pursue false gods. There may be even freedom from their sin, a rest, if you will, for a time. But what we see is that when there's no heart level healing, when there's no deep heart level God created relationship restoration with God, the oppression will return. It will return, it will return if it's not repentant at a heart level. And so as Israel had before, they abandoned the relationship with God, which means they forget who He is, they forget what He has done, they stop listening to His Word, they stop believing His promises, they stop heeding His warnings, and instead of trusting the Creator who has made all things, including time, who knows all things, who sees all things, who can do all things, instead of trusting Him for security and joy, they do, the common phrase in Judges, what's right in their own eyes, which means they trust in God's stuff more than Him. And God's got some great stuff. People are God's stuff. And sometimes we find our joy and security more in people and what they think of us than we do in God Himself. Alcohol and food. God's stuff. Good stuff. But sometimes people find their security, meaning, and joy in that stuff and abuse those things. And the list goes on. Money, careers, power, all those things. So that's what we're talking about. Are you going to find your security and joy and meaning and purpose in God or His stuff? The good things that God gives you and you make into ultimate things. So at this time, um, God's actions seem... You know, he's gone through the cycle. They'll sin, he'll save them, they'll rebel again. It goes on and on. And it seems like as we're getting into this story that God is losing patience. Now, I know he probably isn't. He is infinitely more patient than any of us. But he, he, although he has a very long wick, it does have an end to it, right? It does have, like, it burns out at some point. He says, I am very patient, but I'm also angry at some point. And it seems like he's losing some patience, like he's almost an exasperated father with his kids. For the last few rounds, God had sold his people, and it may not be much different, into the hands of another oppressor. That's what we'll say. He sold them into the Canaanites. He sold them into the Amorites. This time he's like, he just gave them away. Notice that? He just gave them to the Midians. I had no charge. Free. Take them. All right? It sounds like just a God that's like, got to a point like, oh, yeah. I'm done. I'm irritated. And he abandons them or gives them over, not to a particular leader, 
Not to a, a, an oppressor like Sisera. He gives them over to a mob of people called the Midianites. Just a mob. Big mob. And I, as I was reading this, I was like, well, only God has the right to really sell or give a people away, which sounds kind of weird, but only if you forget that he owns everything. God owns all of this. None of this is ours. I love what Abraham Kuyper said. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. We don't like that. It's a very different way of viewing our lives. It's not just that I'm called to manage everything I might obtain in this life, because I know that's God's stuff. No, the very life I use to obtain that stuff is owned by God. The breath, the energy, the time, that's all God's. You are God's. I am God's. I am not mine. And God giving His people away just sounds almost like, I said, it's like putting His people on, a, on the end of a driveway with a sign that says free on them. Like, Yours. Like he's just really abandoned them this time in, in a way that is, is really he's turning from them. And I, I was reminded, it, it reminded me of just like an exasperated father that at, at, the, at the end of his you know, line going, what are you doing? And I found a passage in Jeremiah that, Jeremiah is one of the prophets, one of the major prophets, and he's one of those guys that uh, God said, you're going to declare a bunch and no one's going to listen to you. That's why he wrote Lamentations as well. He's lamenting and weeping over Jerusalem and, and, and really all of Israel. But check out this passage in Jeremiah 5. One of the things he says, and again, when a prophet speaks, he's like, thus says the Lord. So this is the Lord speaking. Now think about this as a father who owns everything, who's given everything, and, and the, the creator who's, who's given you the very breath and everything you have. And here's what he's saying to his rebellious people. He says in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Jeremiah, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people. He's talking to his kids. He's talking to Christians, if you will. Who have eyes but see not. Who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me? Declares the Lord. He's like, what are you, stupid? I mean, I've really, like, do you, do you know who I am? Do you not fear me? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Through the waves tossed, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. Basically, he's like, creation listens to me. The sea stops when I say, don't go any further. He says, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept God from you. That was a powerful passage for me this week. Especially when you begin to complain about your situation which is exactly what the Israelites are doing, failing to recognize they have put themselves in this situation by their sin. What do you mean by their sin? I mean they have forgotten who God is. 
They have forgotten what he has done. They have failed to heed his promises and his warnings. And because of their sin, then, God hands them over to the Midianites, a people with a very colorful history, especially with Israel. You may have heard of the Midianites. You may have not. Let me give you just a real quick you know, highlight version of where they came from. The first time you ever hear about the Midianites, first of all, they were actually one of the sons of Abraham. Midian was a son of Abraham, one of his wives. It was not Sarah, it was one of his other wives. And the Midianites first show up as traveling uh, uh, traders who get Joseph out of the hole that his brothers put him in and then go sell him to, I believe, the Ishmaelites. That's where we first see the Midianites, getting them out and making money off of Joseph. Then you see them again after the exodus from Egypt because Moses had married the daughter of a Midianite priest named Jethro. And that's the, the rule, actually one positive thing you see about the Midianites, at least the southern Midianites. They are very helpful to Moses. His father-in-law is very helpful to him, even up and to and through uh, Mount Sinai. Then as they're leaving Mount Sinai and they're going towards the promised land, the Midianites show up again, this time to attack Israel with their partners, the Moabites. They feel threatened by this big mob of people, which it's quite a few, going through the land. Moses hasn't picked a fight with them. Moses hasn't been told to kill them or wipe them out yet. And they begin to pick a fight. And they hire a guy, which you may have heard of if you grew up in Sunday school, a guy named Balaam. He's the guy who had the donkey talk to him. He was hired by the Midianites. He might have even been Midianite. And Balaam had some great advice prior to the big prophecy thing. He had told the, uh, these, these two partners, the Moabites and the Midianites, you know Moabites, why don't you send the Moabite women into the Israelite camp and you can seduce them and then get them to go after your gods and it'll all be better. That was Balaam's fantastic advice. Balaam is later given a big sum of money by the Midianites and the Moabites to prophesy because he was considered a prophet or a soothsayer, if you will. And he was given money to prophesy and God showed up and said, don't go do that. So he went out. Who knows why he listened to God because he was pretty much a pagan. I can't go. Because I finally had God tell me I can't go. And they can't talk. And finally God says, you go. Because they keep trying to get him to go. And he ends up only prophesying blessing upon him because God speaks through him. And he can't even curse them, though he's been paid to do that. Eventually, because of all the bad things the Midianites did to God's people, God basically tells Moses, I believe it's in Numbers 31, go kill them all. Men, women, all of them. And they do. Kings, people, they're all killed. So now God delivers his children over to the Midianites who have a little bone to pick with Israel. Okay? With their colorful history and last time they met, they were slaughtering their families. So they've got some tension building up. Okay? Now, the Midianites were a nomadic people. So they traveled around. They didn't have um, any organized home, if you will. They, they wandered the countryside, which means they're, they're pretty unorganized in some way, and the only motivation they have is to meet their immediate needs, and whoever's in the way and can do that, they'll take. 
They had no culture, really. They had no home. They had no qualms about going place to place and just robbing and pillaging according to the seasons. So this made the Midianites a pretty uh, despised people. The Jews historically viewed them as pretty unintelligent, pretty undisciplined, and just like a big mob. So this is the people that God gives them over to. And for the people of God, if you remember, have just defeated the Canaanite king and this general Sisera with his 900 chariots, a mob shouldn't be that difficult. Big deal. This is undisciplined, uncultured group of nomads. You know, this isn't organized army with thousands of people. But without God, these wandering, camel-riding Bedouins, basically, uh, overpowered Israel to the extent, if you read in the text I read, they are hiding out, they have, they have fled their fields, fled their land, and they have carved out dens and caves in the hills, and they're hiding in these little caves crying as they wipe them out. That's the situation they find themselves in. Their sin had re- resulted in literally a dark oppression where they're isolated and they're basically self-imprisoned. That's what their sin has led to. And you have these three groups. The Midianites join up with the Amalekites, which they've seen before, and the Ishmaelites, which are descended from, yes, Ishmael, Abraham's other sons. These are all family conflict. All right? And what would happen is they, the Midianites, they would wait for Israel to plant their crops every year. Then at harvest, they would come in and they would swarm in and devour the harvest like locusts, big and fast. They'd bring their tents and their families and their animals and everything in, set up camp, eat everything they could, kill all the cattle they had, and then flee, then leave. And so they lay waste to the land and leave nothing for Israel. And so after seven years of this, seven-year cycle of this, they have no food, they have no money, they have no life, and they're sitting in caves. And every time, think about this, every time they would work hard, so they planted it every year. All right, this year's going to be different. They would go and they plant their fields and they grow, and then maybe they'd set up some new defenses and you know, dig some pits around it or something to get the camels. I don't know, they did all kinds of stuff. And then, every year, at harvest, the mob would come in and they would experience a total wipeout. For, think about it. For all the work they do, day after day, they get nothing. Nothing. Everything fails that they try. And there's some irony in it a little bit where you have a people that are forgetting all of God's work on their behalf. Right? This is what it's about. It's God is, they've forgotten all the work that God has done. They have, they have very robbed God of His glory in many ways. And now they find themselves being robbed by their enemies of all of the work that they do. It's, it's tragically ironic. Maybe not ironic in God's eyes. I think He's very strategic and deliberate in those kind of things. But after seven years, it says they're brought so low... They're hungry, they're poor, they're tired, they're living like cavemen, and they cry out for help from God. They cry out for help. And what do you think they're crying for? It's pretty obvious. Relief. They want 
A change in their circumstances. Get me out of this situation. Give me some food. Give me some money. Give me some mad camel disease to wipe them out. Whatever. Give me something. Change this circumstance because the circumstance is really the problem, right? Wrong! Their heart is the problem. But isn't that how we approach God? And so they ask God, do like you always do, God. Come on, just raise up a, raise up a Savior. Bring us a delivery. did it before. Kind of getting used to the cycle. Starting to maybe take God's grace for granted. Maybe even starting to manipulate God a little bit. Come on, God, this is how you always roll. Right? We do what we want. We get in trouble. We call out to you and you get us out of it. Right? That's how it works, right? Glad there's none of us still do that today, you know. That would be just embarrassing. It's like the Bible's written for me. All right. But then what happens? God breaks the cycle. Well, don't, start, don't start trying to predict what God's going to do, right? He's like, oh, let's do it a little bit different this time. So he breaks the cycle. He doesn't raise up a deliverer to save them from their enemies. He brings a prophet in to scold them. Right? He brings a prophet in. I mean, he raises up a prophet. What? Just a teacher? What's he going to do? How's he going to take out the Midianites? I mean, we need an Othniel. Bring us another Deborah and Barak. Come on. Brings up a nameless prophet. Doesn't even tell you who he is. Just a prophet. Then unfaithful Israel is asking for, for relief what they, for what they see as the problem. And a faithful God is actually addressing the real issue. It's actually going to the real issue. Their life was not in chaos because of the Midianite mob. Their life was not in chaos because of the Midianites. Their life was in chaos because their relationship with God was broken. That's why it was in chaos. And the relationship with God was broken because, in this case, they refused to give up their sin. Ralph Davis, a great commentator, said it this way, More often than not, God is more interested in our understanding than he is in our relief. I don't know if I like that, but I think it's true. Oftentimes, God is more interested in us understanding and knowing him than he is in relieving whatever circumstances we might find ourselves. And I know, for a lot of you, that's not really a comfort right now. Because maybe you feel like you're sitting in a cave, like these guys. Stick with me. I think sometimes our pleas to God are not much different. When life is prosperous and life is fruitful and life is satisfying, our faith is strong. God is so good. And then when life is hard and fruitless and unsatisfying and maybe because of our own fault, we cry out to God, but we cry out for relief of those circumstances and not for faith in them. That's what we cry out. Change it, God. Change it. It's funny, I was talking to Pastor Jim, who's up in Mount Vernon, and here's the way he said it, which I give him credit because I thought it was well said. We rail on the health and wealth prosperity gospel church. 
We go, oh, we're not a health and wealth church, but I think many of us, as he said, are health and wealth in our theology and our approach to God and what we expect and what we feel like he owes because of our faith in him. We approach God oftentimes desiring easy, practical answers to our problems. Just tell me what to do. Tell me how to fix it. Tell me how to get out of it. We go to the Bible. We go to prayer. And instead of getting those kind of things, we, we instead read and, and feel the depth of our sin and, honestly, the breadth of his grace. That's what he gives us. We want to fix, and God gives us faith. Now, rebuke is probably the last thing you want to hear when you're hungry and poor and living like a caveman, right? But if we read how the prophet scolds Israel, it's incredibly amazing. We see that our God doesn't come down with a huge rap sheet of capital crimes, which he certainly could have, charging them with all the things that they've done wrong. That's not what the prophet does. He actually comes with a list of graces. He reminds them of the grace of God. This is not the kind of prophetic condemnation that, we've, that we expect. If you read the prophets, typically, um, when you see the prophets in the Old Testament, particularly in 1 and 2 Kings, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, when a prophet shows up in Scripture... We expect them to provide you know, a list of things that you've done wrong. Here are all the ways you screwed up. Now, here's how you're going to die. I mean, that's kind of what the pattern is, right? Here's how you screwed up. Now, God's going to take this from you and kill you this way. So be it. I've spoken. And then they walk away. That's why everyone hates prophets. That's why prophets were always running around scared. Okay? But here we see God revealed to them not, not why not even why they find themselves in the cave. Like, you guys know how you got in here? I mean, I told you. How many times? He doesn't do that. You guys just, seven years ago, it was all wonderful, right? Remember years, remember Barack, guys? Remember Othniel? He doesn't do any of that. Have you guys noticed any cycle here? Right? doesn't do that. He doesn't list all of their moments of unfaithfulness, but he reminds them of his own faithfulness. That's all he does. And I would encourage us all to do the same. Here's what he tells them. I led you out of the kingdom of Egypt. So here's how his prophet shows up. I led you out of Egypt, the greatest nation on the earth at the time. I brought you out of bondage and slavery. I delivered you from your oppressors. I drove out all of the enemies and conquered all the land of Canaan. And I gave you their land. I gave you their fields, their cities, their wells, their flocks, their rich. I gave it all to you. And then I told you, I am the Lord your God. Not theirs, not theirs. The Lord your God. Don't fear anyone, implying I got your back. And I did all of that. I did it all for you. You did nothing but come along for the ride. She said, I just, this is what I've done for you. And in, I counted them, 85 words of prophecy, only seven are condemnation. 
In 85 words only, I don't even know what the percentage is. I'm sure Chris could tell me, right? Seven words out of 85. And I was reminded how many times I'm calling people to like, just stop sinning, right? How many times am I listing all the reasons that, well, let me tell you why you're so screwed up. Let me tell you all the ways you got in this situation, you idiot, right? As opposed to, let's talk about the faithfulness of God. Out of 85 words, there's seven of condemnation. And the one condemning statement that God gives them is just to show them how much the response is just out of line with his incredible grace. And he says, I've, you know, I've done all these things, but you've not obeyed my voice. Like, that doesn't make sense. I've done all these things. And you haven't obeyed my voice. And no, I'm, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just wondering, how could you have forgotten? How could you have forgotten who I am? And the beauty of it, you see in verse 11, which you'll see next week, God raising up a deliverer. So he almost just takes a moment to say, have you forgotten? Yeah, I'm still going to save you. Which is, again, just a picture of grace, but he wants them to understand what the problem is. In his mercy, God does not give these men and these women and these people and us what they rightfully deserve for rebelling against the God who has given them everything, death. But beyond that, he gives men what they do not deserve, which is just life. And someone who truly, I think, embraces grace understands very clearly what they deserve. They understand the depth of their sin. And they also understand, I think, that God is just and wrathful. But let me just make sure you understand this. I do not believe it's the fear of God's wrath that draws someone to God. Now, I do believe we need to fear God, and I do need to revere and respect His wrath. Jesus told us to. And it, it's foolish not to. But the Bible also says, and I think dem- is demonstrated in Christ, that it's the kindness and the patience and the grace of God that leads someone to repentance. It is the kindness and the patience and the grace of God that leads a person to repentance. The truth is this. There is never, ever, ever going to be a person that will be scared into heaven. Because fear doesn't change a heart. Does that mean we shouldn't preach hell? No. Does that mean we shouldn't talk about the wrath and justice of a perfect holy God? No. But it does mean that fear is not going to change a heart. You're not going to scare someone into heaven. Grace is what changes a heart. Faith begins with grace. Seeing and savoring and trusting the God, who He is, and what he has done, despite who I am and what I've done. That's grace. I still see who I am. I still see, and then I see God's grace and go, wow. Why would you love? Why would you give me? I, I keep rebelling. Yeah, I know. That's grace. And faithfulness, as many would describe in behavior, faithful behavior, 
is a response to God's grace, not a way to obtain it. And I know that, let's be real, okay, I know a lot of us feel right now, and you don't have to raise your hands, but I know a lot of us feel like we're in this cave like the Israelites. You're hiding away, withdrawn, you're hungry, scared, tired, poor, alone, despairing, and you're in this cave. You work really hard, and you have absolutely nothing to show for it. Where's this God of grace? And though I know our first tendency is, because I, I say this because this is my tendency, that we think the solution is a change of circumstances. We think the solution is if God just gives us a new job, if God just gives us a new house or more money or a new relationship, a new blank, it'll be all better. But I'm here to say that a change of circumstances is not the answer. I don't think it's wrong to to plea to God for that, but if that's the only plea that you have, I think you're missing the point. Because you have an internal problem, as we all do. And the internal problem is what God is trying to reveal to all of us, that we need the grace of Christ. We need faith in the circumstances and maybe not removal from the circumstances. The problem is not what you don't have. The problem is that you've forgotten what you have. And so I just simply want to remind you from this several thousand year old text in Judges about the grace of Christ. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book. I would love to preach it at some point, and maybe we will in January. But the first verse of the book of Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We see that today. Nameless prophet. Verse 2 it says, But in these last days, which would include today. So last days would include when Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven. Last days. Okay? In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The final word. If God needed to give us more teaching about His grace, right? If if He needed, and if that teaching would lead us into relationship with Him, He very simply could have sent another prophet. But no, God spoke His final words, everything He needed to say when He sent His Son to do more than just tell us about God's grace. Do you catch that? Jesus didn't just come to teach about God's grace. Jesus came to demonstrate and to be that grace. He actually came to redeem us from everything that enslaved us. He came to die the death that I and you and every sinner deserves to die. And more than that, to give me and everyone that confesses faith in Him the sinless life that I didn't deserve. Grace. And 
That grace is the same thing that, that prophets talk about in Judges, and the very grace that is pointed for much greater that Israel is supposed to be looking for in Christ. So let me just contrast the two what he said, okay? Everything he said about this is the grace, let me just pour out grace today. So let me just convince, forget your circumstances for a second. Your circumstances are not the problem. The problem is you've forgotten everything that you have in Christ. Here's what you have. Jesus led you, if you put your faith in Him, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. What's that mean? You are a chosen child of God right now. His child, in His family, governed, protected, and provided to you by a Father who is perfect, knows everything, sees everything, controls everything. You are a citizen of heaven now, under the King who is more powerful than anyone or anything that might attack you. That's what He's led you into. Jesus brought you, just as He brought Israel out, brought you out of slavery to sin. You are free. You don't have to be enslaved to that sin. You have the power through Christ, by His Spirit, to overcome it. You are no longer enslaved. It no longer has the power to control you. Jesus delivered you from your oppressors. What does that mean? You are no longer defined by your sin. Whatever you've done, that does no longer define you. You have been forgiven. Every accuser has been silenced. The judge has declared you more than innocent. He has not just declared you not guilty. He has declared you righteous. That's different. If I'm just not guilty, then I better not screw up. No, you're not guilty and forever righteous. Jesus drove all your enemies out. He cleaned house. He has revealed all, and what enemies? All, everything in the earth that would tempt you to worship it. All the earthly riches, all the power, the wealth. He's shown them for what they are, meaningless. They're meaningless. And Jesus gave you something of incomparable eternal wealth. And I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, like the caves, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And lastly, Jesus told you that I am your God. I am your Lord. I am your Savior. Do not fear anyone. Keep moving. Keep fighting. I will be with you always, is what he told his disciples before he ascended. Do you believe that? Remembering grace, a pile of grace, should move us to be bold, not timid or fearful. Bold people. Bold in our identity. Bold in our suffering. Bold in our love. Bold in our mission. Bold, fearless, and courageous because we got it all. And though many of us, let's be honest, claim to know God's grace 
A lot of us are sitting in caves waiting for God to change every circumstance. At some point, you stopped looking beyond that momentary affliction, that momentary problem, and you stopped listening to the voice of God. And I'm not talking about the voice of God telling you the three steps of how to get out of your problem. I'm talking about the voice of God, if you listen to it, that just says, Grace. Look at what you already have. Because what you have is infinitely greater than what you might think you need. I'm going to close by praying back to God a psalm that you seem to only hear at funerals. And I'm not sure why. But this struck me. And so I'm going to I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to have communion, which honestly is just a celebration of the grace of God. It is the great grounding to remind us of what we have, of who we are, and reminding us of the importance of all the stuff that we see, which is not very. Psalm 23. If you ever want to consider, and I'll, actually I'll blog on this probably tonight or tomorrow, depending on how much I hate my sermon, so... You know, you'll see. Try reading the Psalm 23 in the negative, if that makes sense. First verse, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Right? The Lord is not my shepherd. And see how that looks. Because the verse verse would be, the Lord is not my shepherd, I shall want. Think about that. But this is a powerful, powerful psalm about people who can't look beyond their circumstances and need to be reminded of who God is and the grace that he has poured out on you. And if you don't know Christ, if you are still sitting in that cave and, and, and hoping that things get better apart from him, it's not going to happen. You need to simply confess that you're broken and you can't get out of the cave yourself. But God hears you. God compels you. God forgives you. And God gives you an inheritance that can't be compared with. And he gives you, hopefully, an attitude like this. So if you bow your heads, I'm going to read this. And then I just hope that you would listen to it very carefully because these are the words of God. And my prayer is that your heart will truly believe these words. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So go us in the grace of Christ. Amen.